0: As always, it is a true blessing to open our Bibles and study the Word of God. I do want to wish you a Merry Christmas. I pray this will be a wonderful season and growth for you, and in spite of all this stuff that's going on in our world, from the election to the disease that's been going around, and especially picking up pace on the mainland, we definitely still take joy in Christ Jesus. You know, I I mentioned this in my prayer. I mentioned this earlier to the group in there as we prayed before. uh, One of the reasons I love Christmas is because we don't just celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas. We celebrate the whole first advent, which includes His life, His death, His resurrection, His ascension to His throne. And uh, with all that in view, uh, we rejoice and we can come and gather and sing and, and think about the truth of Jesus Christ. For me, Christmas is the climax of the year. It's the apex of all The season, and we've come to another climax, and this climax is in the book of Matthew. I think so far in the book of Matthew, we have reached the top. This is the highest point at this point in our study of Matthew. I was telling someone earlier this week, I almost feel like the whole reason I've been preaching Matthew for two years is to get to this point. If you think about it, this is Matthew's point to, to call us to make a conclusion. In our hearts, not just with our lips, not just with our minds, not just with our emotions, but to draw a conclusion about Jesus Christ. What better time to consider who Christ is than during the Christmas season? Now we're looking at Matthew chapter 16, and in this passage, what we're going to find today is Peter's confession. We're going to take several weeks just to take this passage and unpack it. I'm calling this message, which really is going to extend over next several Sundays, Six Truths of a True Confession. We're going to unpack these truths that we draw from this passage. We'll just get to the first couple today, and this is from Matthew 16, and I'll be looking at verses 13 and 14 in specific today, and the whole section goes all the way down to verse 20. As I've said this before, I spent a lot of time up here, Defining faith. What is true faith? What is genuine salvation? What does a genuine believer look like? What does he look like on the inside? And what better place to study that than here in Matthew 16 13 to 20. Let me read this very familiar paragraph to you and then we'll begin to look at these things. Verse 13 of Matthew 16. Now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. the Christ. This is the Word of God. 30 months, that's about how long it had been since the beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's how long it was until Jesus asked this question of his disciples, who do you say that I am? About 30 months in. Now I know that there's a little debate about exactly when Jesus' ministry started and where you want to mark that and scholars differ on that. But about 30 months in, Jesus looked at his followers and asked them that question, who do you say that I am? What a test. Had they had they learned? Had they been listening with ears that would hear? Were they understanding? Were they truly following him? Some of these guys had tracked Jesus from the very beginning, even before the beginning. They were there, some of them likely at Jesus' baptism. Others of them caught on, were chosen by Him a few months later, but again, as a round number, they were about 30 months in, and Jesus looked at them and asked, who do you say that I am? Well, it just so happens in God's happy providence that we are exactly 30 months in to our study of the book of Matthew. Since June 3rd, 2018, we have studied this wonderful gospel, and we've taken a few breaks, of course, but a little over hundred sermons in, we have been studying this magnificent gospel. And I realize that as a preacher, I've been swimming in the book of Matthew every week, pretty much every single day of the week, I have been thinking about the book of Matthew, studying the gospel of Matthew, thinking about it, and, and perhaps for you as a church member, maybe it's a few minutes on Sunday and maybe a few minutes during family group during the week. Maybe not swimming in as much as I have, but, but here we are at the 30-month mark asking the most important question of our own hearts. Let me ask, where are you in these 30 months? How far have you come? Have you changed spiritually? What's happened in your life these 30 months? Are these things that, circumstances and things in your life, have they drawn you closer to Christ? What does your discipleship of Jesus look like? Does it does it differ? Is it better or worse from what it was thirty months ago thirty months ago? I understand this is the church. You are the called-out ones. We, our theory on doing church as, as Macaquillo Baptist Church, our theory on church is not that this is an evangelistic event and our objective is to get a, bunch, a whole bunch of people from the community. Uh, yes, we welcome anybody that would want to come on a Sunday morning, but, but I preach to the church. And, and the truth is, as I preach to the church, I, I do it with understanding that, that most of you have made this profession. Now, certainly there are those who have not truly made this profession, but this message is even for you. What has changed? Is this profession growing stronger and deeper? Are you growing in knowledge and faith and and trust in Christ? Have you grown more convicted of sin, more desirous to to follow after Christ in these 30 months, or is it the same or perhaps worse? Is your relationship better than it was with Christ 30 30 months ago? Perhaps even you are right at that point, that point in a spiritual sense, Jesus is looking at you straight in the eye and asking that once and for all question, who do you say that I am? The person and identity of Jesus Christ is really the heart and soul of the message of the Bible. The Old Testament, and the New Testament points us to Jesus Christ. It's, it's not just the climax of Jesus' instruction, it's the climax of the Bible to, to call you to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And Jesus here takes it beyond academia, beyond religion, beyond doctrines and statements and formal pronouncements, and He goes right to the heart of Peter and all the followers. Who do you say that I am? This question is certainly, no doubt, for those of you who are on the fence, you have not professed Christ, at least... Truly profess Christ, and you've been on the fence about committing to him, being his disciple, surrendering everything. The question really is whether or not you receive who he is. God, the Savior, Messiah, who paid for your sin on the cross. He provided that atonement. And this question is for you is a question of personal faith. It's a question of conversion, of salvation. Will you have faith in Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the Living God? But again, the question is applicable to Christians, perhaps even more applicable to Christians than you might think. Don't think that just because we're studying this question, you thought, well, I've I've known the answer to this question since I was a child. I can sort of nap throughout the holiday season sermons because I've got this settled in my heart. The truth is, because if you if you have truly received God, you truly receive Christ as God, as the Messiah, as your Savior, Jesus is still sticking his finger in your chest, basically saying, prove it, live it. Let me see this. And if you're like me, as you study this, you'll grow more and more convicted. And even if you've changed some in the last 30 months, maybe not enough, and you can find your own failures and your own weaknesses and your own pride, and your own sin, your actions, your words, your habits, your desires, all these things that are sinful, and your fellowship of Christ is not what it ought to be. So, over the next few weeks, throughout the Christmas season, really, we are all going to be challenged, do we really believe, do we really confess with our lips and our lives and our hearts that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God? You're tired of your sin, you're tired of your failure, your sin abhors you, you want to follow Christ, you want to be someone who truly believes and lives that belief in your life day to day? In this passage, my hope is not just the turning point in sort of an academic way in this book of Matthew, but it's the turning point even maybe in your life. Maybe this is the start of something new, the start of something special. So, in the next few weeks, we're going to study this magnificent passage, passage. Are you ready? Okay, what is true about Peter's confession here? And I'll get to this later on. When I say confession, I don't mean confession in the sort of narrow sense, agreeing with God about your sin, right? When we hear the word confession, usually we think of sin, And and that is a right thought. That's a good thought, because confession is agreeing with God about the nature of your sin. Uh, But confession, that word confession, technically is not limited to just sin. It's it's agreeing with God about uh, anything. And and here, Peter, maybe some of your uh, translations have a little bold and italicized, Peter confesses Christ, or Peter makes his confession, or something above this paragraph. Uh, Matthew did not write that. Your, Your translator's uh, put those subtitles in uh, a lot of the translations to help us understand what's going on, to summarize these paragraphs. And, and this word confession is a way of talking about what Peter does here in agreeing with God about the nature of Jesus Christ. He'd heard the prophecies, he'd seen them all come true, he'd, he'd perhaps been aware of all the things that we learned in Matthew about the fulfillment of those prophecies. He'd looked at Christ's life, heard his words, watched him live, and Peter believed. He believed in his heart, and out of his heart, his mouth spoke. He believed in Christ. So we're going to learn what is true about a true confession. Technically, six truths about a true confession. What are they? Number one, write this down, stands against common opinion. A true confession stands against common opinion. Verse 13, it says, they went up to Caesarea Philippi. That is a a city that's north of Capernaum, pretty close, but north of Capernaum. If you've ever toured Israel, a lot of times you'll go to Capernaum, tour Capernaum, and then you'll drive up just a couple of minutes up to Caesarea Philippi, where this all happened. Verse 13, now, when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they said some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, obviously here, Jesus is not confused about what people are saying about Him. I mean, He already knew what they were saying about Him. Not only did He know it by power of deduction, he'd, he'd heard it even from the lips of, of Herod, assuming He was John the Baptist. But Jesus was very insightful. He knew spiritually what these people felt. More than that, we know that sometimes God granted him, uh, in walking in the Spirit, God granted him use of his divine power to read hearts. And we saw this several times as he read the hearts of the people around him, particularly the, the Pharisees. And he, he could read hearts. He knew people's hearts. He knew what they believed. So why did Jesus ask this question? Is Jesus sort of insecure? Hey, what are people saying about me? I, I, what, what are people, do the people like me? I don't think Jesus is saying that at all. I think what Jesus is doing is he wants his disciples to see the contrast between a true confession and false confessions. He wants them to see the contrast between common thought, common opinion about Jesus, and the truth of who he was. Son of Man, by the way, Jesus uses this oftentimes to refer to himself. We've mentioned this before. Jesus lifts this title from the book of Daniel. They had become accustomed to Jesus using that title for Himself, Son of Man. And what Jesus wants to do is He wants the people, the disciples particularly, to see the difference, the contrast between common opinion and the truth of Jesus Christ. I think this is a very helpful point. The helpful point is this. Most people you encounter will believe falsely. Don't assume that everyone who has some sort of positive vibe or positive affirmation toward Jesus or toward God or toward Christianity believes rightly. Most of the time, they believe falsely. Now, I'm an eternal optimist. If any of you have been around me, I'm always happy. There's very few times where I'm sad or depressed or pessimistic, but Jesus is essentially saying, and this is something Jesus has taught before, we need to be a pessimist about what most people believe. What most people believe is false. Jesus talked about this earlier when He talked about At the end of the day, when people come and stand before Him and they've done all this religious stuff, Lord, Lord, I've done all this stuff, and what does God say to them? Behold, I never knew you. In other words, Jesus is saying, we're not going to be surprised who makes it in. I had someone tell me, we're going to be surprised how many people actually make it into heaven. And I said, sir, I think Jesus says the exact opposite. We're going to be surprised who doesn't make it to heaven. There are a lot of religious people, a lot of people who are very positive about Jesus, who are very happy about Jesus, who have experienced the grace and blessing of Jesus and Jesus' people in their lives. Now, this is the people of Galilee during the time of Jesus, right? They're very positive about Jesus. They love Jesus. And they give this very positive affirmation. Boy, he's got to be some kind of prophet. Maybe John the Baptist raised from the dead, just like Herod said. Maybe another one of the great prophets, Elijah. Maybe Jeremiah. I think the reason Jeremiah is mentioned is uh, there were some rabbis that taught that Jeremiah would rise up at some point so, here are these people saying, maybe he's one of these great prophets. And as positive as that is, that is a false confession of Christ. This got me to thinking, what are the most common? As we live on this earth, what are the, who are the people that I've ident- I can identify as, as false professors? People who, who reject Jesus, some of them openly, but then others sort of are positive toward Jesus, but it is nevertheless a a false confession. I wrote down several groups of people. Maybe you could think of a few more. One I wrote down is there are pagans, of course. These are people who openly reject Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth is not God. He is not the Messiah. and He's nothing. They reject Jesus as divine. Of course, when you think pagan, you think worshiping false gods. In the modern-day sense, pagans are more Uh, related to Satanists. They worship all these false demons and gods, and they completely reject Jesus at all. And they, they essentially say, there's no need for any real Messiah. There's no way Jesus was this. This never happened. And again, maybe you don't know a lot of pagans in your life, maybe not even a lot of Satanists in your life, but you probably do know a lot of humanists and a lot of secularists. You probably know a lot of people who, who reject Christ and, and sort of mock the idea that He's any kind of Savior, any kind of God. He may have existed. I don't know if you know this, but years ago, in, as the modernist era began, people sort of try to, to, try to be modern and, and cutting edge. They would reject even the existence of Jesus Christ. And these folks exist even today, people who are secular, people who are humanistic The modern arrogant position is that these claims that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Messiah, are foolish, they come from a, an era of, of stupid people believing stupid, mystical things, and they're much smarter than that are enlightened. Atheists fall into this category. Most agnostics fall into this category. Humanists, as I mentioned, fall into this category. Secularists fall into this category. By the way, these are the people that make up a large part of the U.S. education, public education system, as well as the mainstream media. They fall into this category. They have no love for Jesus. In fact, they mock, and at least in their hearts, maybe not publicly, but they mock, at least in their hearts, this idea of a Messiah, God. Similar to pagans of old, they would just simply outright reject Jesus as Messiah, God. Who else? Well, there are the Pluralists. These are people who say that Jesus is one of many ways to a better afterlife. I think this is probably the most popular profession or confession of Christ in Hawaii, probably in other places like Southern California, where there's a great appreciation for spiritual stuff for thoughts about the afterlife and mystical things. There's a lot of appreciation for that, but they would say, well, all these things are true. Whether you're a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Muslim, or whether you just sort of make your own path, you know, as long as you're good and moral and you don't harm people, you'll make it to a better afterlife. And this is certainly not what Jesus claimed of Himself, right? Jesus, on 14.6, on the way the truth and life, no man comes to the Father but by Me. These people reject that idea. They think there's many paths. They've I mentioned this before, they, they picture it like a mountain, God's sort of on top of the mountain, and they say, well, there are many paths, many ways to get up that mountain. It doesn't really matter what it is as long as you're trying. These are the pluralists. This is the pluralist rejection of Christ. And they may even have some sort of positive language, positive affirmation of Christ, but it is not a true confession of Christ. The pluralist rejection of Jesus is not dissimilar to the liberal rejection of Jesus. The liberals say Jesus is divine, He is a Messiah, but merely in a spiritual sense. He is not really divine. He's not really the Savior of the world, just sort of symbolically or spiritually so. They're trying to draw some sort of compromise between, you know, the pluralist and the atheist and... and old-fashioned Christians, and they're trying to sort of draw the middle line. They want to have some sort of compromise here. They want to say the things that Peter says here, but in the end, they don't really mean it in any true sense. They would say, oh, I believe in the virgin birth. Of course, that doesn't mean that Mary was actually a virgin, obviously. She was with someone before that. The virgin is just sort of a representation of how kind she was. Now, Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, but He rose from the dead in the hearts of His followers, and He lived on with them. This is what Protestant liberalism says, and believe it or not, there's quite a few churches and denominations that are given over to this kind of thinking. And it is not a true profession, not a true confession of Christ. It is a rejection, even if they sort of positively affirm and even use some of our language to talk about Christ, they're not truly confessing Christ. This is another form of rejection. And this lie has destroyed many churches, people, churches, even denominations. But I don't think any one of these things are as dangerous as the last group of people, because no doubt we have some of you right in this room among us. That's the last group of people? These are the hypocrites. These are the people who affirm Jesus, who confess Him with their lips, but deny Him with their lives. Their hearts are far from God. They may even deceive themselves. They may even think they believe. They assume that they're in, but they're hardly consumed with Jesus Christ. Their lives are anything but a testimony of of someone who, who follows Christ. You look at their morals, their language, their talk, their habits, they may go around and tell people they're a Christian and they may even come to church from time to time, but as you dig into their life, you peel away, you realize they're anything but committed to Jesus Christ. They're hypocrites. Sometimes you don't see it till the end of their lives, right? They fake it for a long, long time. Judas faked it. Now, Peter was speaking on behalf of all the disciples, but there was one there who was a hypocrite, one who sort of made a, a, a confession of Christ through his leader, Peter, but he didn't really mean it. Maybe, maybe even at that moment, we don't know, but maybe even that moment he really felt warmly about Christ and, and thought, well, I, I believe this. But down deep inside, he rejected Christ, the Son of God. Well, this brings us to a second truth regarding a true confession, and I think this will be all we get to today. Number two, a true confession comes from the heart. A true confession comes from the heart. Before I I show you this, I want to explain what I mean by heart. Heart doesn't simply mean emotions. We use the word heart to talk about emotions. A kid goes out on the football field, and he's smaller than everybody and weaker than everybody, but, but somehow he's in on every play. He makes big plays, saves the game, and we would say that young man plays with a lot of heart. What we mean by that is a lot of emotion. He plays with a whole lot of emotion. What I mean by heart is really what the original Hebrews would mean by heart. Even Jesus himself, when he talked about heart, is, is, is not just simply emotions. Emotions are sort of the result of something that would happen in the heart. The heart is the, 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 the seed of a person. It is the, the eternal part of a person. It's their soul. It's the deepest part. It's the part where I think every person is born, every intelligent, sentient being is born knowing there is an eternal part of them. There is an eternal side of them. This is our heart. Yes, it is true that oftentimes when we feel something or believe something in our heart, it results in emotions, but it's so much more than mere emotion. Even here in the text, I I believe there probably was emotion here. As as Peter said this great confession, all the synoptic gospels record the same thing, the same story. It must have been huge. It was a big deal. Perhaps Peter said it with emotion, but Matthew doesn't tell us it's with emotion, he doesn't even mention emotions, but I do believe He indicates this confession was from the heart. Now, what is here that helps us deduce that this is from His heart? First of all, we hear it in the language of Jesus, the way He asked this question. Like all languages, there are ways to emphasize things and emphasize different parts of the question, and, and here in the original language, Matthew shows us that Jesus puts His emphasis on... Uh, on what I believe is representative of the deepest kind of question, the deepest kind of inquiry. Inquiry. Matthew shows us Jesus put His emphasis on this identity of Peter at the, the deepest part of Him. Now, this is hard to see in English, uh, but if you know any other languages, you know that a lot of languages, they have endings to verbs. Take a verb, an ending is smashed onto it, and that, that ending indicates the, the pronoun that goes with that verb. Uh, You may not even use the pronoun with uh, the verb. In other words, this this word say here in the original is you say, or technically you all say. Who do you all say that I am? But in the original, in order to make emphasis, you would add another pronoun. Technically, what Jesus says here is, who do you, you say... Again, they did this in the Greek to indicate very deep emphasis. In English, we might use inflection or volume or tone. Who do you say that I am? Men? Disciples? I hear what other people are saying. I know what other people think. I see their false affirmation. It's really a form of rejection. But who do you say that I am? What's in your heart? Second reason I think Jesus was asking a question of Peter's heart is what Jesus unpacks for people uh, for Peter a couple of verses later. Verse 17, Peter, you have been blessed, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. This gets us all the way back. The purpose of the parables, right? For the crowds, Jesus' identity has not been revealed down deep in the deepest part of their being, down in their hearts, but to you it has been revealed. And because it's been revealed, you have been changed. And because you've been changed, you now make this profession. It is not to your credit, Peter. It is not to your glory, Peter. Much like Mary, it wasn't to Mary's credit. And the angel came to Mary, it says, he says, Oh, favored one, not because she was such a great person, just a great gal. She'd done nothing at that point. She was just a young child. She herself admitted her need for a Savior, so she was a sinful child. The grace that she had was not grace from within. It was grace given to her by God. And, and, and this is what Jesus is saying to Peter. Peter, the, the, the idea that you profess this is because God has told you this and revealed this to you in your heart. And this truth of who I am comes from your heart. Peter has been changed. His heart was regenerated. There is a radical difference in Peter's heart that's now bubbling to the surface in this confession. Why? Because God has changed him, He has regenerated his heart. This confession is not just empty words for Peter. The disciples, the Judas notwithstanding, these are something from the heart. The Spirit of God had changed them. They have been blessed, and it's not to their credit. It's not because they were just better than people around them and realized and did the math and made a decision out of their own will. No, God had blessed them. God had blessed them. And Jesus tells Peter this from the very beginning. This confession is from your heart because... God has given it to you. From that heart Peter spoke. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. There must be people You're here this morning and God has been moving in your own heart and drawing you nearer and nearer and he's changing your heart and it's time for you to make this profession of faith in Christ, this heartfelt confession. Jesus, You are my God. You are my Savior. You are my Christ and my Lord. Here in a few moments, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. And many folks, this is is sort of a strange thing that Christians do, this little ritual with little meaning. And I've said this before, but... In Jesus' ministry, He began talking about them doing this, eating His flesh and drinking His blood, and it was very strange, so strange that some people would walk away from Him, thought that was just bizarre, sounds cannibalistic. John 6, 54, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, I will raise up on the last day. That just sounds bizarre to a lot of us. Well, it's bizarre if you take it in a literal way. Jesus wasn't meaning it in a literal way. He was meaning it in a spiritual or figurative way. The same thing he meant when he said he's the bread of life, and if you eat or take or partake of the bread of life, you'll have eternal life. It's the same thing he meant when he said I'm the living water. Whoever drinks of me will never die. This is all the same symbol. We have these truths of Christ, of what He did and what He accomplished in life and in His death and His atonement, and we ingest it, not as some sort of physical ingesting of Christ's body and blood, but as a a symbol of what we've done. And what have we done? We have taken the truth of Christ to our heart. We ingest it because it's come and made its way. It's penetrated us all the way down to the heart and changed us. This is but a symbol of what God has done on our behalf. These are not just cold, hard facts for Peter, The truth of Christ, His Messiahship, His deity, these are not just academic and and doctrinal stuff. This is something that flowed from His heart. This is what He really believed in the deepest part of who He was about Jesus. Now, all of us need to check our hearts for a true confession, right? Even if you did make a profession of faith in Him at some point... You have to ask the question, was that a farce, or was that real? Fake profession, hypocritical profession, or was it real? How do you know? Do you bear fruit in keeping with repentance? Do you live a life that's consistent with this confession? Christians, we check our own lives. Even if we believe with all of our hearts that it was a real confession, when we repented, came to Him, does your life look like that? your life look like you're a disciple and you really believe that Jesus is the Messiah God? Well, let's pray that we constantly and faithfully make this confession with our lips and with our lives. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for Your Word, for Your truth. We thank You for this time that we can come and, and gather together and study it. We pray, dear Lord, that You would bless us here in a moment as we take the Lord's table. Bless us as we study these things. Uh, Lord, as we meditate on these things, may this be true of us. I do pray a, a special prayer for those who don't know you in this room. Uh, for those who have watched our, our, our stream, Lord, on the Internet, I pray that, Lord, you'd bless them with the knowledge of salvation. Lord, come to their hearts. Open their spiritual eyes. Call them forth from spiritual death. Call them into life. Bring them into life, Lord, we ask. It's something only you can do. But Lord, that's why we come to you asking for it in the name of Jesus. Amen.